Well, if you have your Bible with you, please would you turn with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, where we're looking today at verses 20 to 21. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 20 to 21. And uh, we're going to read... The benediction here, it says in verse 20, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please keep your Bible open there. Now then, uh, I wonder if uh, you've ever heard this story before. It's one of the most amazing escape stories I've ever heard. It's the story of three men, Tim Jenkins, Alex Mumbaris, and Stephen Lee. And these three men, back in the late 1960s, early 1970s, they were activists against the apartheid in South America. Sorry, South America, in South Africa. And uh, unfortunately, they got arrested for their handing out of leaflets or their campaign of distributing leaflets. And uh, they ended up being sent to the Pretoria High Security Prison for such a terrible crime. Uh, And the three men were determined to do what they could to carry on and to break out. And so they hatched a plan. The problem with this plan was, to get out, they had to get through ten locked doors. And this would be almost impossible to achieve, because they didn't have any keys. So what they did was an incredible, incredible thing. These three men, they managed to get a piece of a bar of soap, and somehow get a pressing of the key from one of the guards. And then in the woodwork uh, workshop that they were allowed to go to, I think once a week or something like that, they cut a key out of wood to get them out of their cell. In fact, they not only made one key, every lock was different. So they had to get pressings of each one, and they had to make keys for each one. So they made ten wooden keys. The difficulty was also because... Uh, the fact that the, the key had to be put in from the outside, of course. You, can't, you don't have a lock on, in, on the inside to, of your prison cell for you to get out. So they had to find a way of being able to put the key in and turn the lever. So they then made a, a, a broom handle lever out of wood. And all this was kept secret in their cells. And together the men managed to escape out of that prison. What a remarkable achievement. But it also tells us something about the power 
of keys. By the way, you can see that in a film now called Pretoria. It's, it's a bit grisly in places, but it's a true, true account of that, of that event. But it tells us something about the power of keys, doesn't it? Keys unlock things. And this is something we see in the, in the Bible uh, again and again. The Lord Jesus, we're told, holds the keys to death and Hades. Hallelujah for that. He can unlock the door of death and has done with his resurrection from the dead and sets us free. But what about the keys to the Christian life, living the Christian life? Well, here in the book of Hebrews, the author, who I think is Paul because of so many things that point that way, uh, the author gives a benediction at the end, which is like the keys to the Christian life in a little prayer. This little, these two verses, verse 20 and 21, are, are what we call a benediction, a short prayer at the end. And it's uh, a little compact little prayer that that praises God for certain things and it it describes what I think of as the keys to the Christian life and I don't know whether you're uh, here today because you're looking into Christianity maybe Christianity is new to you or whether you're somebody who's been a, a Christian a long time or maybe you're a young Christian new in the faith I want to tell you about the keys to the Christian life because this will help you a lot to see the things that we need to know about becoming a Christian and living the Christian life. And uh, relax, there's not 10 keys, okay? <laughs> I'll keep you here till lunchtime, but I have got five keys for you here this morning, okay? God's peace is the first key. Second is God's plan. Third is God's person, the Lord Jesus. Fourthly is God's provision. And fifthly is God's power. So for a few moments, let's have a look at these keys, shall we, and see these glorious things. The first key then is God's peace. And that's what we see in the opening line of verse 20. The writer says, may the God of peace. And that's how he begins. Now in the Bible, there's many names and descriptions of God. But this one is a particular favorite of the Apostle Paul's. One of the things I I think is a, a clue that Paul was the author of this letter. And five times in his letters, he uses this description of the Lord, the God of peace. And the Lord is the one who can give us peace in our hearts. That's one thing a lot of people are looking for in this world is to have peace. You know, uh, they they feel restless, they feel unsettled. Uh, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And peace comes from God. But before we can have peace from God, we need peace with God. And that's what this verse, I believe, first of all, is talking about. I remember reading a a book by R.C. Sproul, the the American theologian. And in that book, he talks about when he was a little child, he had this experience. He he grew up in the 1940s and he said he remembers playing outside in the road with his toy cars. And it was quieter on the roads in those days. Kids could do this. And he played on the edge of the curb with his toy cars and he was having a quiet little game. It was a quiet day when all of a sudden, People came rushing out of the doors of their houses. Women came out with saucepans and started banging them together. Men came out and jumped in their cars and they didn't drive anywhere. They just sat in their cars hooting their horns furiously. And people were flooding out onto the street and dancing. And he remembers going up to his mother who was banging baking trays together. And he said, Mom, what's going on? What's going on? He was frightened and alarmed by this. 
And she looked at him and she said, Darling, the war is over. The war is over. It was the end of World War II. And that meant for him, his dad was coming home from the war. It meant the war was over. Well, the writer to the Hebrews begins with this because this is the greatest key of all. That God has made peace for man through the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice the next phrase talks about the blood. And it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm using the NIV. I know the order is different in different translations. But it says, may the God of peace who through the blood. And he, through the blood, has made peace between men and God. You see, man has been cut off from God ever since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, Adam as our representative head brought judgment on the whole human race. And man was separated from God. And our sins that we have committed personally have only added to the offence and the distance. And God talks in the Bible about grievance and enmity towards man. In fact, in the book of Colossians, it says this in Colossians chapter 121. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. And that's true. That's true for all of us. Our sins, when we say, oh my And take God's name in vain, that causes offence to a holy God. When we lie, when we steal, when we look lustfully, we put more and more barriers between us and God. And there is enmity between us and God. But the next verse in Colossians says this, But now he, not us, but he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish. And free from accusation. God has made peace with man through the death of Jesus on the cross. And that means if you and I put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died there, we can be forgiven and we can go to heaven. Because God has no barrier between us and him. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, if you go to Northern Ireland, you'll see a a huge cathedral called St. Patrick's Cathedral. And uh, I'm not a fan of these places, really. But it's got an interesting story uh, connected with it historically. That in Northern Ireland at that time, there were two feuding families. The Fitzgeralds and the Butlers. And uh, in the 1492, the two families were feuding. And this meant conflict, literal conflict between them. And the uh, butlers, I think it was, took up residence inside the cathedral for safety and locked themselves in. Well, the Fitzgeralds eventually saw sense and came to make peace. But that would require the butlers opening the door. (laughs) And they were scared to do so. So do you know what they did? They cut a massive hole in the door through which they could put their hands to shake to see if it was true. And that door is called the door of reconciliation. I want to say, dear friends, it's as if God has made a door in the window of heaven and put out his hand and said, do you want peace? I sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you so you can go to heaven instead of hell. His blood has paid the price for your sin and I am willing to make peace with you. Are you going to take him up on such a gracious offer? I would urge you to do that today. 
Put your trust in him if you've not done so. This is the first key of the Christian life. Forget about the rest if you won't do this. Because the rest is for Christians. But if you do know the Lord, if you come to the Lord, then you can enjoy the rest. But you must have peace with God to bring that enmity to an end. This is where the writer to the Hebrews begins because this is in keeping with his great message of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice who saved us by his blood. Come and have the peace of God. And then secondly, the second key is God's plan. And this is spoken of in the next part of verse 20. He goes on and says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, this is where we enter into something mysterious and wonderful. What is meant by the eternal covenant? covenant well a covenant is an agreement the greek word diatheke means an agreement uh, between people and uh, like when we get married in a church uh, we make a covenant a covenant of marriage it's a legally binding agreement between two parties and the bible is a book of covenants you open the book of genesis and you're going to find covenants you read in genesis 15 how god made a covenant with abraham to give him a seed a family and how to give him a land to live in and so on that's found in genesis chapter 15 you come to genesis chapter sorry exodus and you read about the covenant that god made with moses and the uh, and the people of israel at mount sinai you go on to the book of samuel and you read about the covenant that god made with david that one of his seed would sit on the throne of israel and be king forever the lord jesus you come on to the new testament and we see at the at the last supper The Lord Jesus took up the words of Jeremiah and applied it to his death on the cross and said, this this blood in this cup, (laughs) what this cup symbolizes, is the new covenant in my blood. So the Bible is a book full of covenants. They're all made in time. But behind those other covenants, there is an eternal covenant. A covenant in the Godhead in heaven. And this is where we're taken into the glorious depths of, of, of revealed truth by God. Don't let me explain it. Let me bring forth one of the most important church leaders in, in our British history, George Whitfield. If you've never heard of George Whitfield, George Whitfield was a, an evangelistic preacher. He's, he preached actually in the Bristol area, around this area, born in Gloucester, where some of our friends are from. And he was singularly used by God, probably more than anybody else. God gave him a miraculous voice to preach the gospel, and he could cover for miles with the power of his voice. Benjamin Franklin came to see if it was true, and he ended up... Uh, uh, being a, a, a witness that, that uh, he sat five miles away in the end and he could still hear uh, Whitfield's voice. I seem to remember the story says it was so amazing how God blessed him and used him. And of course with Wesley, multitudes came to faith. But you know one of Whitfield's chief doctrines? It was the eternal covenant. The covenant of grace, as it's sometimes called. And he put it like this. He said this. God the Father and God the Son entered into a covenant concerning the salvation of the elect from all eternity. Wherein God the Father promised that if the Son would offer the soul, his soul a sacrifice for sin, he should see his seed. 
Simply put, it means this, that before the world was even made, God the Father and God the Son, and I believe the Holy Spirit, entered a covenant together for the salvation of sinners. You say, John, where's this taught in the Bible? It's all right quoting Whitfield, but where does it say it in the Bible? Well, we have the eternal covenant here as opposed to the temporary ones, but there are numerous other little references to it. Uh, In Isaiah 42, we read about um, God's, is one of the servant songs, as we call it, where Isaiah prophetically has God the Father speaking to God the Son. And uh, in verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, that's God the Father, have called you, God the Son, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Timothy talks about the plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world in 2 Timothy 1.9. And in the book of Titus, we find a fascinating little insight at the beginning of Titus's letter. Paul says this, he says uh, about the salvation Paul, a servant of God and and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Listen to this. Which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Well, if God promised eternal life before the beginning of time, who did he promise it to? Didn't promise it to us because we weren't there. Didn't promise it to the angels, because angels were created in time. It was only the Godhead who was there. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit conceived the plan of salvation for sinners to be drawn drawn into heaven and to be saved. This is an absolutely remarkable, wonderful thing. And if you begin to see it in scripture, I really believe God has taken you into his counsel. You know, Psalm 25 says that God, for those who walk with him, he will make his covenant known to them. You know what, that's spoken to me ever since I started reading this, that God, you've revealed something to us that we would never have known. This has happened in heaven. I sometimes put it like this. If you came up the church one day and you saw Dave Beezer and Dave Brown and Chris Stevens up here with their tools and they're all working on a project, fixing something, trying to make these benches a bit more comfortable, okay, you know, you'd say, now those three men, they're here, they're not here by accident, they're here by agreement. They all came at the same time. And not only that, they came together because they had a plan of what they were going to do. And they're fulfilling it. Well, when we see God the Father working the plan of salvation, God the Son paying for our sins on the cross, the Holy Spirit drawing us to God, we realize God has a plan, an eternal plan. And this is one of the wonderful, wonderful things that uh, is uh, grounds for our encouragement and assurance in the Christian faith. And it's, it's why unexpected people get saved. Uh, You know, sometimes you look at people and you say, I I came from a Christian home, you know. A lot of people look at me and say, oh yeah, well I know why you're a Christian. Your mum and dad are Christians. So, you know, you just believe it because they believe it. That's what I get told all the time. Actually, if you come from a Christian home, you know that's not true because a lot of people from Christian homes rebel. But what about some unlikely characters? 
This gentleman in this picture comes from a, a book I've been reading lately of God's amazing works. And uh, it's the story of a man called the Old Colonel. He was a, a street person who lived in, in New York City. And uh, this guy, he was an alcoholic and abused his, his body. and He was living a life of sin. His clothes were held together with nails. That's how tough this guy was. You know, he didn't have buttons, he had nails. And one day he stepped into church because it was cold outside and he wanted to get warm. And he walked into Walter Street Church. And as he walked in, the preacher was sharing the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this man who'd been hardened against God all his life, when he heard the gospel, God just broke him inside. And he said, I want to be saved. And you know what? Every week in the congregation, amongst all those posh, respectable people, in would walk the old colonel and sit there and praise God the loudest and say amen the most heartily because he had trusted in Jesus Christ. How do you account for that? I'll tell you why. There's a plan of God and God is drawing sinners. Or how about this lady here? I read this lady. Her name is Julie Meller. And Julie Meller was a school teacher uh, and she was an atheist. And one of the things she deeply resented was when the Gideons came round and gave out these little Red Testaments to the people in her school, the children in her school. She said, as far as I was concerned, she said, they were wasting my teaching time and they were wasting it on fairy tales. But I had to put up with it and they even gave me a Bible as well to make matters worse. Well, she stuck it up on the high shelf in her, in her classroom and left it there for seven years. This woman, who was furiously atheistic, she was a, a, wasn't a, a daft person at all. She had a master's degree from Cambridge University. She, she hit a time in her life when everything fell apart. And she said this. She said, I went through a traumatic period and I thought my life was ruined beyond repair. I was actually considering suicide. And at that point, she found that old Bible up on top of her shelf that she'd left up there from when the Gideons came seven years ago. And she said this. She said, God, I'm going to believe and pray to you for a month. And you've got to show me the goods. She said, I must have been mad. She said, but that's what I said. She said, you know what? I opened the Bible and she said, I was touched in my soul. I took... One look at Matthew's gospel and she said, it spoke to me. These were the words I exactly needed someone to say to me right then. So reassuring. I instantly understood that Jesus was what everybody is searching for. I found him. I'd mocked him my entire adult life and yet he yanked me out of this dark place. How do you account for that? Atheists with degrees don't normally become Christians, do they? They do, if God has a plan and draws sinners to himself. And maybe that's why you're here today. You know, I I used to go to a church when I was growing up where the pastor often used to say that each one of you is here today by a divine appointment. You're not here by an accident today. You're here by a divine appointment. And I believe that. I believe there's people here today who are going to be saved. 
because they're, trust, they're going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful truth to come to terms with. Thomas Boston said this, The covenant of grace held forth in the gospel is the cord of love let down from heaven to perishing sinners shipwrecked in Adam to save them from sinking to the bottom of the gulf and to take them to land. Take them out of hell to take them to heaven. What a plan of salvation. That's one of the keys to, to really uh, being enriched and, and, and sharing in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Third key is the key of God's person. And that's what we see in the next part of verse 20. The verse reading from the beginning says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, that's Jesus' blood on the cross, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. And here the writer to the Hebrews brings forth the third key, which is so vital. The one who paid for our sins on the cross is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one God wants us to put our trust in and to follow. And he proved this by bringing him back from the dead. And when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, that wasn't the end of it. It was as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned at that time, they put him in the grave. But three days later, Christ rose victoriously from the dead. And he came back from the dead. I love that phrase in uh, uh, coming back. It's used in the book of Acts of some of the apostles being set free from prison and coming out. Coming out unexpectedly. Christ came out of the grave conquering. And this is a wonderful, wonderful reality and truth. One writer puts it like this. He said, if we only had the gospel accounts of the earthly life of Christ up to his death on Calvary, the full extent of his glory would not be seen because his earthly walk showed the fatigue, weakness and death of his humiliation. It is true that in the events of his humiliation, we see wonderful divine attributes manifested, such as his mercy and love, together with his holiness, wisdom and faithfulness, and many manifestations of his power. But we do not see his power of endless life, his unchangeability, or his supreme invincibility. The cross is all humiliation, even in its display of divine attributes. But the resurrection completes the picture and it's so right Christ rising from the dead shows us the one who we're to put our trust in and he's called here the great shepherd of the sheep you know that would have really spoken to the Hebrew Christians the Jewish Christians who read this letter because they would have had a bible that we don't tend to use so much these days it's called the Septuagint It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Ever since Alexander the Great had conquered the world, the world spoke Koine Greek, and so they needed the Bible in that language. And the verse in Isaiah, chapter 63, verse 11, talks about Moses, the great shepherd of the people, coming out of the sea. But now these Hebrew Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism rather than going on with Christ, he says, no, he's not the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. And he didn't come out of the sea with with the crossing of the Red Sea. He came out of death. He conquered death. And as a result, he's the one you need to put your trust in. Dear friends, get it absolutely clear in your mind. The person of Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ, said Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was right. 
Christianity is all about our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we praise the name of Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. We do our good works in the name of Jesus for a profit reward, as we're told. And it's all about him. He's the great shepherd. And his resurrection, what a blessing that is for each one of God's children. You know, I read somewhere about the Native American Indians uh, in Michigan and how they used to make their roads in the olden days. And basically what they would do is they would send out scouts to go on a trail to to get from A to B from their different lands because their their cattle moved around and so on. They weren't farmers like the, the British were when they went out there setting up settled residents, they would move from place to place. So what they would do is they would send scouts out and they would make little footpaths just wide enough for a man, 12 inches wide. And the people would walk along these paths, single file. But then they would bring through the horses. And the horses being that much bigger and wider, they would widen out the path and make it a bit wider. And then after that, they would bring the carts and the carts would make the road wider still. And now what you had was you had a road. Well, I want to tell you, they were called the trailblazers and that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's made a way through to eternity by his resurrection, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's why we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and thank God for him. And if you want to know what the book of Hebrews is all about, it's all about how Jesus is better than anything else. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. So make a note of it in your head and heart. It's not about the Pope. It's not about the vicars. It's not about the pastors or the Sunday school teachers or anybody else. It's about Jesus. And it's Christ you need to put your trust in. Fourth, that's Christ, God's person. Sorry. Fourthly, God's provision. And this is what we see in verse 21 now, moving into the next verse. And he says, equip you, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. Now, the verses uh, in the different translations um, vary on this, how they word this. And some talk about us being made perfect. But I'm going to go with the NIV this morning and say I think this is right. It talks about the good shepherd equipping us with everything good for doing his will. You see, a lot of people, when they hear about becoming a Christian, say, that sounds wonderful, I'd love to go to heaven. But you know what? I couldn't live the Christian life. I couldn't live it. And you know what, they may well be right. Somebody has said, Christianity hasn't been tried and found difficult, it's been tried and found impossible. (laughs) That is right. God's standard isn't a a moving scale, you know, well, you just do your best and whatever you want, that's what I'll be pleased with. God's standard for all of us as Christians is perfection. You know, the book of 2 Corinthians 13 ends, aim for perfection. You think, well, you you know, there's me, how can I do that? Well, God has made provision for us in our lives. We don't have to do it on our own. He's provided what we call the means of grace. That means God has provided different things to help us to be able to live the Christian life. What sort of things are we talking about? First and foremost, the Bible. All right, The word of God. All scripture is God-breathed, says 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And is useful for teaching, 
and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's provision for us to live the Christian life. As we read the Bible, its power goes to work in our lives and we start to see how we should live. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's given us uh, the, the fellowship of the church. You know, when you're in fellowship with God's people, you see constantly the example of other Christians who are going on ahead of us. And this helps us to live the Christian life. He's given us communion as a means of grace to remind us continually of our Savior's love for us and to challenge us to to walk closely with him. And many other means of grace uh, as well. Peter says that his divine attributes have given us everything we need. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. 2 Peter 1.3 So when we start out in the Christian life, we're encouraged to know that God has made provision for us to be able to make it through. Don't be discouraged thinking somehow you've got to come up with the goods. It's been provided for you. God knows what you need. That's the fourth key. The fifth key and the final key is God's power. And the last part of this verse says this. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice it says here that God will work in us us and this is the secret of living the christian life the key to living the christian life is to know not only that god expects us to do our best but that god actually comes and helps us after we've trusted christ someone comes and lives in your heart the holy spirit he comes and dwells in our hearts that we may live the christian life and it's a little bit like a glove if you look at a glove you think well what can that glove do But do you know what that glove, I've got a pair of gloves at home, they drive the car sometimes. Uh, Sometimes sometimes they'll play guitar, Uh, sometimes they'll do jobs, but those gloves can't do anything on their own. But when I put my hand inside them, those gloves can do what my hand can do. And that's like the Christian life. When we become Christians, the Lord comes inside us and helps us so that he works in us what is pleasing to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same truth that Paul taught in the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And as one old preacher said, my responsibility in the Christian life is my response to his ability. (laughs) That's beautiful. So, We have God's power and work inside us. And when you become a Christian, ask the Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Help me to live in his power today that I may please you. And then you will do all this to the glory of God forever. Friends, the good thing is, these keys, we don't have to make ourselves like those guys in the prison. These keys have been provided for us. They're just waiting for you and me to take them up. And I hope each one of us here today will do that, starting, of course, with God's peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's sing our final.